Hey there, I'm Brittany, and welcome to the Cape Cod Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit our website at capecodchurch.com. In the meantime, we hope you enjoy this message in our current series. I guess this better be good, huh? <laughs> uh, we, are, we are so, uh, so happy that uh, Pastor Ben's going to be back um, uh, next week, we're, we're happy for the reason for that, that, uh, that Tammy is doing so, so well. And I, and I firmly, firmly believe um, that that is due to the power of a praying people. Uh, I thank you for, on behalf of the staff. I thank you that uh, the fact that she is doing miraculously well has a lot to do with the fact that you've been praying uh, very hard for her. So well done, Cape Cod Church. Uh, so as Brittany said, I get to speak to you on Father's Day today. Um, now, the hazard of being a dad, or, or in my case, even a granddad, um, and delivering a message, I don't need these to read, by the way, I just need them because it makes Pastor Ben feel better when I wear them. Um, <laughs> the, the hazard of delivering a message on Father's Day is that by inference, uh, you might think that I have some profound insights related to fatherhood that, that made me a great dad. Um, as my girls will tell you, that was not the case. I, uh, I, I barely made a passing grade, I think, as a dad. Um, uh, but I did get a really cool Father's Day shirt about 10 years ago uh, out of that. So... I must, I must have done something right, and the really good news for me is that my granddaughters still think I'm perfect, so that's, that's good. Um, happy Father's Day, as Brittany said, to all you dads, and, and I'd like to expand that just a little bit, um, because not everybody can be a, a biological or even an adoptive dad, um, but, but I'd, I'd wager that most of the men in this room, even if they don't have their own children, have had a positive impact on some young person in your life, probably much more than you know. So we celebrate you on Father's Day as well, because you've been a dad, whether you got to be one uh, biologically or adoptively or not. Uh, what I do have for you today, though, is dad jokes. Um, uh, those of you that uh, may have been uh, with us back uh, uh, in uh, January, just after the New Year, I, I, uh, I preached, and, and one of my uh, Christmas gifts uh, was this brilliant piece of literature, The Book of Terribly Awesome Dad Jokes. So I, I thought, uh, uh, in honor of Father's Day, before I start my message, I, I, would, uh, I would offer and, and let you enjoy a couple of them with me, shall we? I was fired from my bank on the very first day of the job. A woman asked me to check her balance, so I pushed her over. <laughs> and this gem, what do you get when you cross a dyslexic, an insomniac, and an agnostic? Someone who lays awake at night wondering if there is a dog. <laughs> the rest of you will get that in just a minute. Happy Father's Day, everyone. It's been a great Father's Day weekend here at Cape Cod Church. Um, yesterday, uh, about 100 men uh, came and shared breakfast with us, including uh, several, it was really good to see, several young men in training, as I call them. Um, and then today, um, we're going to figure out the weather, I promise. 
Uh, but we're going to have our world-famous bacon chili cheese dogs. There's a photo booth in the lobby. Um, hopefully games out on the patio. Uh, the game may be uh, jumping in puddles, but uh, uh, we just like to celebrate the importance of dads in our lives here at Cape Cod Church. And my message this morning, while not specifically about fatherhood, it doesn't have any brilliant insights, as I said, um, but my message does define, in my view, uh, one of the primary characteristics that makes a good dad good. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Mark this morning, um, so if uh, starting in chapter 9, so if uh, you want to turn your Bible app or, or, uh, or, or in your actual paper Bible like this, um, you can do that now, but don't worry if you, if you don't have either of those, we're going to put the verses up on the screen as well. Um, now, if you're un unfamiliar with Mark, um, Mark is, is probably the most action-packed and fast-paced of the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life and teachings. Uh, it quickly moves from episode to episode and from teaching to teaching and, and even from place to place. And, and frankly, it can be a little bit hard to follow sometimes as you're reading it. Um, at least chapters 9 and 10, where we'll be today, are, are definitely that way. Um, but from them today, I'd like to highlight a, a specific and, I think, critical teaching that Jesus offered his disciples and, and to us uh, during the, the, the last few weeks of his life before he was crucified. Uh, for, for the purposes of today's message, I'll call that teaching living second. Living second. As I mentioned, Mark 9 is a, is a busy chapter. It starts with what we call the transfiguration of Jesus. Uh, the, the episode, most of you are probably familiar with it, where, where he took three out of his 12 disciples, um, James, uh, Peter, James, and John. We'll, we'll, we'll call them the big three if you want. Um, he took them up on a mountaintop where Jesus' appearance uh, was transformed and, and the disciples were able to actually see him in his full, brilliant glory. Um, out of nowhere, uh, Elijah and Moses, the prophet and the lawgiver, appear with Jesus. Uh, and then, uh, to, to cap it all off, uh, the voice of God, uh, which I'm sure sounded a lot like Charlton Heston, um, said, um, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to what he says. Very dramatic moment. Uh, then the four of them, the, uh, Jesus and the, and the big three, come back down from the mountain into the town where the other nine disciples are trying to heal a demon-possessed boy, uh, but they're, they're failing, they can't. Um, then Jesus heals him, of course, and scolds the disciples for their lack of faith. Uh, then the whole gang heads back through the region of Galilee up to the town of Capernaum, uh, up on the Sea of Galilee, which, which Jesus had kind of made his home base for the ministry. And along the way, um, interestingly, Jesus tells them plainly that he's going to be killed and rise from the dead on the third day. Um, but the disciples didn't get it, and, and I think they were afraid to look stupid by asking, uh, what the heck are you talking about? Uh, I, as an aside, I, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that Jesus intentionally picked his disciples to make us feel better about ourselves. 
If you've ever had, if you've ever felt bad about your your, your own faith walk or or your ability to understand Jesus's teachings or or the Bible in general, uh, just do a quick study of the disciples. Uh, you will feel better about yourself because they 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 didn't get it either. Now, one of the ways I think that we we can know that the four gospel accounts of Jesus's ministry are, are actually true and historical is that they were all either written by the disciples themselves or they were recounted to the authors by a specific disciple or disciples. And who on earth would make themselves look so bad if they were just writing fiction? Uh, Mark chapter 9 concludes with Jesus and the disciples back in a house in Capernaum. It may have been, may have been Peter's house. And I'm sure there was lots for them to talk about as they were remembering their amazing trip. If you read back in that section of Mark, he heals the 4,000, or feeds the 4,000, he heals hundreds, he, uh, the teaching is amazing. Um, and then the conversation wanes just a bit, and it gets a little quiet, and, and Jesus drops a bomb on them. Uh, in Mark uh, chapter 9, verse 33 and 34, uh, we read this. After they settled in the house in Capernaum, Jesus asked his disciples, so uh, what were you discussing on the road? Dead silence. They're looking at their shoes. They didn't answer because they had been arguing about which one of them was the greatest. Ouch. In the first place, how tough must it have been for to have a boss and a teacher who, who knows all your thoughts and can hear your conversations even when he's nowhere near you. But, but, but come on, guys. Uh, you just saw the man transfigured, casting out demons, feeding thousands, healing hundreds, and all you can talk about on the way back home is which one of you is better than the others? Yikes. But if we're honest with ourselves, the disciples represent us in the story, don't they? Uh, sadly, their me-first attitude, uh, their focus on their own power, prestige, and privilege is the most natural thing in the world. And, and we know that because we battle it ourselves every day, don't we? I, I know I do. Uh, as much as I like to think of myself as a humble, others-focused guy, uh, the reality is that an opera man lurks just beneath the surface at all times. You know what an opera man is, right? Somebody who thinks about, talks about, dwells on, me, 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 me. <laughs> I, I know this is true of myself because I drive on Cape Cod. And like many Cape Codders, I'm, I'm more than happy to, to kindly let you out into traffic ahead of me, and, and I'll, I'll gladly accept your, your happy wave or your, your flashing headlights saying thank you. And, and I feel good about myself when I do that. Humbly, of course. Humbly, but, but I feel good. However, should you dare to pull out in front of me without being invited? Or should you dare to not yield properly when we're zippering from two lanes to one? Why can't people figure that out? Or, or you don't let me out into traffic when you could have easily done so and you see me sitting there? 
Uh, Opera man rears his ugly head and honks and yells and declares that you are an idiot. Uh, Honestly, were it not for the Cape Cod Church magnet on the back of my truck, it might get really ugly. Uh, But we can't feel too badly because me first is the natural order of this broken survival of the fittest lookout for number one world, right? Sometimes, sometimes though, we, I mean, we rationalize it by saying, I'm just looking out for my own interests, or, or, or even better, I'm just trying to take care of my family. But, but the reality is that we, like the disciples, are by and large all about our own power and prestige and privilege, living a me-first life most of the time. And I don't have to tell you, I know, about how our culture both uh, uh, reinforces and leverages that attitude, uh, convincing us that, that looking out for number one is the only sane response in a world where those people are out to get us. And also convincing ourselves that we should buy ourselves more stuff because, by God, we're worth it. Sadly, it turns out that our propensity for self-focus and living a me-first life is actually really bad for us, at least from a mental health perspective. Um, It it hurts us, not just just others, it hurts us. Uh, Living for ourselves actually causes ourselves harm. Uh, PhD psychologist Michael uh, McGee put it this way in an article in Psychology Today magazine a few years ago. He wrote, Being self-centered is costly. It is at the root of many psychiatric illnesses, including addictions, anxiety, and depression. And it damages relationships by making intimacy very difficult. But Jesus offers another better way to live. In fact, for his followers, he commands it. Going back to Mark chapter 9 again to see what Jesus had to say in response to the disciples' non-response when he asked them about what they were talking about on the road back to Capernaum. As the disciples were standing there looking uncomfortable, staring down at their shoes because they knew they'd been busted, um, Jesus gathers all 12 of them together closely so that they can hear him clearly and then tells them this in verse 35. Whoever wants to be first, whoever wants to be first in my kingdom must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. It probably stung just a bit for for the guys who were just arguing about which one of them deserved the most power, prestige, and privilege. And and remember, this passage comes near the end of Jesus' ministry, right before he sets out for Jerusalem and the cross. So after almost three years of teaching, Jesus is wrapping up this amazing journey that they've had out and about and back to Capernaum, a journey that included countless miracles and teaching, as well as Jesus being revealed for who he really was, the the Messiah, uh, God in the flesh dwelling among them. He wraps all of that up with the most important lesson that he could give them that being his follower was not about gaining power, prestige, and privilege, but was instead about a different way of being first. That is, living second. 
Mark's next chapter, chapter 10, picks up on this same theme. Uh, Even though Jesus and the disciples have now headed back out of Capernaum for the last time, and and they're now on their their way, their slow, steady trek uh, to Jerusalem and the cross, Jesus keeps teaching them, and and he also teaches the crowds that always gather around wherever he went. And and while, if you read chapter 10, the the subjects uh, and and the lessons may seem disconnected, Uh, Mark cleverly arranges them to emphasize Jesus' command at the end of chapter 9. And that is, if you want to live great and live, or be great and live well in my kingdom, you you must live second. So so he teaches about divorce. And he says, uh, if, 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 if you want to be my follower, live second. Men, put your wife first. Don't divorce her for frivolous or selfish reasons. And he gathers some children together and he teaches about children and their humility. And he says, you need to be like them by living second and humbly trusting God and putting him first. And then, and then he teaches a lesson about money. You're familiar with this one. The, the rich young man or rich young ruler who comes and says, how, am I, how must I be saved? And, and at the end of the story, Jesus says, uh, uh, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And he, does, he goes away sad. But Jesus teaches in this that, hey, if, if you let it, your me first desire for power prestige and privilege will lead you to make money into your god so live second seek the good of others use your wealth to bless the less fortunate and then at the end of that famous passage summarizing his teaching to the disciples after he tells the rich young man to go away um, jesus tells them that in his kingdom it's all about living second Jesus says that's the only real way to gain status in his kingdom still amazingly uh, the disciples don't really get it if we keep reading in one of the stranger episodes that Mark recounts for us um, James and John uh, the, the brothers who were there at the transfiguration they're part of the big three they heard Jesus's clear message in chapter 9 about how he wanted them to live second uh, they sneak around behind the back of the other disciples and they, they ask Jesus for a promise to be elevated to his right hand and his left hand above the others when Jesus is crowned as the, the, the messianic king of Israel, which is what they seem to still seem to think this journey to Jerusalem is all about. Uh, when the other disciples hear this, uh, they're mad, of course. Uh, but not because they think James and John uh, should have gotten the message about living second. They're, they're mad because they didn't think of asking for the same thing. Uh, look at uh, Mark chapter 10, uh, starting in verse 42. Um, by, by the way, as, a, as an editorial comment on this, having read chapter 9 into chapter 10, um, I envision uh, that Jesus must have been face palming when he said this. So Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lorded over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you will it will be different. I love uh, a couple other translations that say that. Not so with you. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man did not come to serve 
but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. Now remember, one more time, Jesus is on his final march to Jerusalem and the cross, and he only has a couple of weeks, even less than that, in which to teach the disciples before he's arrested and crucified. As Mark lays out the story in these two chapters, it's as if Jesus wants to hammer this one single teaching into the disciples' heads before it's too late. Stop worrying about being first. Stop trying to outmaneuver each other for positions of status and wealth and honor and power. That's the way of the old world and the old reality. If you want to be truly important and truly useful to me in my kingdom, in my new reality, in the world that I've come here to restore, you have to serve others and put them first. You have to start living second. And as his followers and disciples today, I think that's his message for us as well. But Jesus doesn't just command us to live second because it's the only way we can effectively serve his kingdom, although it is. He also wants us to live for others because it's the best way to live. In other words, it's actually good for us. This is the beautiful paradox, I think, of the Christian life. By putting others first and denying my own desire for power, prestige, and privilege, I actually live better and more fully than I ever could by focusing on me first. As it turns out, serving others and living second gives me three things that I can never really enjoy, I think, if I'm self-focused and living the me-first life. First, um, and parents uh, pay attention, it gives me patience. Patience. Because if you think about it, um, patience only comes when I can acknowledge and accept that your time is just as important or maybe more important than my time. So it gives me patience. It gives me the ability to understand that my time is not the most important thing. Second, it brings me peace. I'll use a little bit of that. It brings me peace because I'm no longer in competition with you. I'm no longer worried about jockeying for position because I'm happy to be second to everyone because that's what the master told me to do. And finally, living second brings contentment. Uh, because if I'm no longer striving for power, prestige, and privilege, I can be content with exactly the amount of each of those that I already have. So what does this look like in real life? Here, here's some ideas. Here's what I think. I, I think in marriage, it looks like a Christ-centered partnership in which each spouse, each spouse tries to outdo the other in honoring, caring for, and serving their partner in our finances, with our money. I think it's a recognition that any abundance I enjoy is a gift from God that's meant to be shared with those in need and not spent on bigger, faster, shinier, and newer possessions for myself. At work, I think it's the realization that, that my success isn't defined by my, my promotions or my position or even my paycheck. It's defined by how well I treat and serve those with whom I work and for whom I work, even if I'm the boss. And in our daily interactions with our neighbors and, our str and strangers, it's an attitude that everyone is eminently worthy of respect and kindness and dignity and mercy, 
whether they enjoy positions of power, prestige, and privilege or not. And yes, that includes my fellow drivers on Cape Cod. Of course, as we all know, uh, living for ourselves, living me first comes much more naturally for us, uh, which makes living second, in my view, something that is supernatural. Uh, It only becomes possible, uh, I believe, when we acknowledge the sovereignty of the one who commands us to live that way, and when we humbly submit ourselves to him. As the Apostle Paul put it when writing in chapter 2 of his letter to the Philippians, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Because you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Although he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privilege and took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. He is our standard for living second. He came to show us what living second looks like, and he came to tell us that living second is the way to power, prestige, and privilege in his new kingdom. Now, if you're here and you've never made the decision to acknowledge Jesus Christ as the sovereign king of your life, the one who died on the cross to to save you from yourself and from the misery of a me-first life, we'd love to talk to you about what that would look like and and help you get to that decision, how you can join him and us in living second for him. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for for being our good, good father. Um, The beautiful example on Father's Day of what we all are called to strive towards, uh, not only as fathers and grandfathers, but as kingdom citizens living in your world. Father, we, uh, we thank you for your teaching. We thank you for your example. We ask your blessing on all fathers and grandfathers, and that includes all who have had a positive effect on young men and women as role models as men. Be with us today as we celebrate. Lord, I hope the rain has stopped out there. Please bless those bacon, chili, cheese dogs. And we thank you that uh, you have called us to put others first, to experience the joy of living seconds. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.